When you ask a teenager, what was the most impactful thing that happened for you while you were at New City? You're, you know, you're expecting them to say, well, that I got ready for college or that I learned an instrument. But you know what they say all the time is like my kids, the kids that I was in charge of. And I just love those kids to death and, and I would do anything for them. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Over the course of the last year here at the Acton Institute, we've been bringing in local social service providers so that our staff can gain a better understanding of the critical work that they do here in the Grand Rapids, Michigan metro area to help alleviate poverty. Today, I talk with the leader of one of those social service providers, Trevor Rubing, of New City Kids. New City Kids offers after-school programming for local low-income youth. Children and teens get a chance to explore music and academics in a creative and fun environment. Though there are many challenges of urban life, especially for youth, these programs give children a safe place to feel and hear that they are valued and loved. New City Kids aims to draw children into hope by developing in them skills, talents, and desires for their future. By surrounding them with a community of love and development, they strive to set youth on a path of transformation that will carry them forward for the rest of their lives. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Trevor Rubing, welcome to Act in Line. Great to be here. So tell me, for our audience, introduce yourself, tell them uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, New City Kids and how that program came to be. I and my wife co-founded New City Kids together almost 30 years ago now. And we came straight out of seminary, Princeton Seminary, just idealistic, young, excited about building the kingdom of God, wanting to make a change in the world, but also feeling very um, called to really dealing with the issues of poverty and um, wanting to bring resources to less resourced places. So we found ourselves as church planters in a very interesting city, on the East Coast called Jersey City, New Jersey. And a couple things about Jersey City, 400-year-old city, um, people outnumbered trees two to one, and 30,000 people per square mile. You could pull, you know, put your hand out the window of your house and shut your neighbor's window when the music got a little too loud. <laughs> and so um, a lot of the normal problems of, of urban poverty. We, we um, worked at our church plant for a while, but um, we continue to notice this dynamic that a lot of the folks that we were finding and, you know, meeting and wonderful people, but they, they describe themselves on sort of a downward spiral and just the pressures of poverty, uh, systems, injustice, uh, but also sometimes their own choices, bad luck, whatever, had put them on this downward trajectory. 
And we began to think, you know, what if we, instead of beginning a church with adults, what if we could start it with kids? And we were still thinking, at this point, we were still thinking of a church, a church plant. And, um, you know, just for, for some background information, kids growing up in poverty in the U.S. face some, some really difficult challenges. So um, you probably have heard some of them, but uh, the United States incarcerates children at a higher rate than any other country in the world, which is bizarre when you think about some of the countries mm-hmm, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 80% of Latino and African-American 29-year-olds do not have a college degree. Um, only 9% of kids growing up in poor communities will graduate college by age 24. And even though college isn't everything, it still adds roughly a million dollars to your, uh, your lifetime income. Sure. I, I used to live in Chicago for about 15 years. And while I was there, discovered this uh, statistic that I think is adjacent to the one that you just gave. Chicago Public Schools is a system of about 400,000. It's less than that now, but at the time mm-hmm. that I found this number, it was about 400,000 students. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it would, the number was six out of every 100 will go on to earn a bachelor's degree by the time they are 25. Oh, my gosh. Which, yeah. I mean, one, it, I think it does testify to what you were talking about as well, that there are a lot of um, uh, struggling kids, uh, kids coming from poverty-stricken circumstances that are in the Chicago public school system. And I agree with you, colleges and everything, but that six out of every 100 uh, is in a system of almost 400,000 is really takes you aback when you hear it. Right. And, I mean, if you just think of... Uh, really uh, full urban high schools here in Grand Rapids. We have Union High School in, in Ottawa and Ottawa and other schools, and the teachers are working so hard to make a difference in those schools. But often there's only one college uh, counselor for, you know, hundreds of kids. And so, yeah, that, that makes it super difficult. Um, anyway, we noticed this downward trajectory. We, we said, what if we started earlier? And we began to shift our approach to working with kids. And over time, that morphed into, instead of a kid's church, uh, launching an after-school center that's focused on music and academic success and spiritual development. But here's the thing that makes it really different, is that instead of uh, staffing our five-day-a-week after-school center with adults or with trained volunteers, we staff our programs almost entirely with paid high school students. And so the, the high school kids become the trusted, respected leaders of a program that they are in charge of. And that just gives these kids such incredible agency. It, it makes them feel like, okay, uh, I'm actually a leader. I'm in charge of something. I, I get out of school and now I'm suddenly, doesn't matter. I might've had a bad day. I might be facing some issues at home. I might've had a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend and none of that matters anymore because there's this classroom full of kids staring at me as if I'm in charge because I am in charge. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really remarkable. I mean, so you have, uh, young adults serving kids and I, I'm certain you have stories related to this as well, um, you know, being served uh, themselves in the process of you know, learning to be in control of uh, a room of kids like that is, you know, for a teenager, I would imagine, I couldn't imagine doing that as a teenager. Um, I imagine that's uh, something pretty remarkable to witness. Yeah. They, and they, they love it. I mean, at first they're terrified, of course. Sure. And uh, we have a tryout and uh, you might have, 
80 kids coming to try out for 30 jobs that we have open in any particular year at any particular site. Uh, we have seven sites in four cities right now. And these 80 kids, you know, are nervous. This might be their first high school job that they've ever had. And so we break the, we break the ice and we, we make them do goofy things and we make it comfortable to fail and, you know, humiliate yourself on stage and things like this. And we just have a fun environment and loosen them up. And then we do role plays. We teach them how to interview, how not to interview, and we um, give them an assignment. And then the next day they come back. But probably the crowd thins out, you know? So it was 80, now it's down to you know, 55. So there's some self-selection happening. By the end of the third day, we make our choice and we're really looking for um, the need, that they need this job, that we can make a big difference in their life and their ability to uh, rise to the challenges of the job, that they have kind of the minimum basic uh, ability to show up on time and so on. And then they become uh, just this wonderful resilient diamond in the rough kind of uh, young person that over the course of four years with us will have all these incredible leadership skills emerge. I noticed when you were listing off uh, some of the things that you do with the kids, the first one that you mentioned was music, mm -hmm. um, which I think, when you think people think of these after school kind of programs, um, I imagine for most people what comes to mind first is a focus on academics, studies. Um, so was there a particular reason you mentioned music first? Is this um, uh, something that... I mean, to me, so I'm uh, to fully disclose, um, I was a music major. Oh, wow. Uh, so that coming first in the list of things, especially knowing what that meant to me as a child, yeah. uh, being in band, um, the things that you learn working together in an ensemble like that, uh, to me, were always incredible lessons in how, you know, just to make the analogy just very clear in harmony, in getting people to work together, doing different things in ways that make something uh, that's one, but that's beautiful right. of its all, all of its constituent parts. Right. Well, music is a huge focus for us. We have four areas of development which work together to bring this transformation that we see happen over the course of, you know, I, I say four years, but that's four years of high school because a lot, most of the high school paid teenagers were also growing up in the program. So it might be 10 years that we're with them. And so the four kind of uh, foundations of our programming are spiritual, leadership, academic, and musical development. And in case you forget, there's an easy way to remember. That's SLAM, S-L-A-M, Spiritual Leadership, Academic, and Musical Development. And what we find is that the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. When these four interact with each other, it's incredible. So for example, take leadership development and combine it with spiritual development. It's one thing to uh, say, hey, I have a Bible study. Anybody want to come on Thursday? You might get a couple kids to come, or maybe not. But when you say, hey, uh, we have a job and we want you to be in charge of stuff. And during the course of that job, as you get to know the organization, you have an opportunity to lead the Bible study. Leadership combined with spiritual development supercharges that spiritual development because, as you know, you never learn something so well as when you have to teach it. So you asked particularly about music. Um, music is just this incredible force. And it's this God-given gift that every human being loves. Not every human being loves sports. Um, 
And the other thing that's just really unique about music is, I don't mean to be crass, but kids who have been sitting all day, they love to hit things. And we have drums. Every kid gets an opportunity to learn drums. We have- Percussionist right here. Uh, okay, so, yeah, yes. I feel you. <laughs> and, and so we have 20 drum sets at New City Kids in here in town, Grand Rapids. And uh, kids, after a day of being stuffed up and, and maybe, you know, squiggling and squirming in school all day, now they suddenly come here and they're allowed to hit something really hard. Yeah. And, um, but structured and in a way that brings music and they learn these basic beats. And they can learn guitar, they can learn bass, the piano. And again, all of these classes taught by teenagers who in some cases are only like 10 lessons ahead of the kids they're teaching. But it's it's amazing to see how the neuroplasticity of the brain and and just the, you know, there's so much evidence about how music can heal trauma. And listening heals a little bit, but creating music heals a lot and teaching music heals the most of all. I agree. I think Todd Rundgren had it right. I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum all go. day. It doesn't make everything so much better. Um, what do you what do you hear from the kids that uh, are involved in the program about the musical component of it? You know, so the, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely that there is something spiritual about music that speaks to us and, and our innate human nature in a way that few other things do. Like, you know, you, I, uh, I've joked with friends that the, the only people I've ever come across that I just don't think I, I understand are the ones who are just kind of like, yeah, I just don't really care about music. Because yeah. I think most people on some level right. do. You, you don't have to get as you know, deep into the knowledge of like obsessive about one band like you know, I'm certainly guilty of. But you still enjoy it. What, what do you hear from those kids um, about their experience with the music education, what it's meant to them, and, and the, the impact that it has on them? You know, it's it's not even um, hearing about them. It's listening to their music. It's watching when they're not required to do something, what do they do? They immediately go to the instrument set up on stage and they start jamming. And um, a common experience that we have at New City is we'll have these worship bands form in September every year. And a lot of the kids are coming to New City. They're maybe from unchurched or underchurched backgrounds. And... Um, we invite them, hey, would you like to be part of the worship team? Oh, what's that? Oh, we do music and Bible study and there's there's pizza and, you know, okay, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And then um, four or five weeks in, one of the teens will come up to us. This is about God, isn't it? <laughs> you figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> and, but see, what happens is during the, during the rehearsals and during um, when we're leading worship in a church, they begin to sense the deeper meaning of the music and the message that it's conveying. And it really is life transforming. And we've watched kids grow from not knowing any music to being incredible musicians. I have a young man that uh, is trying out for a summer camp at Berkeley School of Music in, in uh, Boston. And, um, you know, his audition tape is extremely, extremely good. He has a good chance, a good shot at it. Are you a music musician yourself? Yes. Yeah, I play piano and guitar and uh, bass guitar and a little bit of drums are enough to be um, get in trouble, I guess. <laughs> uh, talk about the academic compo uh, component of it. Um, what 
What are the challenges that you see with the kids that are coming into the program from an academic front, um, you know, both in terms of what's challenging to them individually and then, you know, are, are they experiencing any challenges just kind of relating to the school environment that they're in and then how do you address those? Yes, well, um, for sure. And it's different in each one of our cities. There's different academics. Uh, let me actually stop you there real quick. So you mentioned four cities. Other yeah. than Grand Rapids, where, uh, where Detroit else are you? Okay. and Jersey City, New Jersey, and Patterson, New Jersey. And we're also uh, partnering with a number of organizations internationally as well. So in uh, in each of the cities, it's slightly different. But what we find a lot of times is, of course, kids have lower reading abilities and everything builds on your ability to to read. So we often offer first and second grade reading classes in a lot of our in a lot of our sites. And uh, we realize and recognize we cannot be a school. You know, we have 45 minutes with them or an hour to do homework and then they go to music class. So we really just try to find out what the teachers want, how we can partner with them, how we can come alongside and help their homework get done. And the teenagers are trained to not do their homework for them, but help them discover the learning process as they do their homework. So uh, it's a supplement to to their school process. But the reading early on is is a real key, I would say. The need for after school programming like this, um, you know, so it's, I think there are a number of reasons why it's so important, not uh, just because of the realities of certain parents. Again, so I I had a lot of experience looking at the Chicago public school system. And for years, I always thought one of the baffling things was uh, the school clock um, that kids get out around 3 p.m. when I think we all know most working adults – are working till 5, 5.30 if they're not in a lot of the cases where we would see looking at families on the west side or the south side of Chicago and some of the most impoverished areas, you've got parents who are working two jobs to be able to support their families. Um, I know this is such a, a, a critical need. Um, what, what have you observed? Is there anything different, different between the different cities in terms of uh, kind of the level of need or the challenges that uh, uh, kids are facing in terms of what, what they need in that period of time between when school lets out and when they're home with a parent or both parents, because um, in, in Chicago, as I'm sure you're pretty well aware, uh, the dangers are very real oh, for yeah. kids being kind of out on their own after school before sundown. Um, we all know about the violence in Chicago. So in many cases, programs like this, a gentleman I'm familiar with in in Inglewood in Chicago, Joe O'Cool. Uh, runs a chess program after school, and one of the re- the reason he started doing it was less about like he's just I know this game so I can teach it, and that's how he started the program. But it was because one of his students was tragically killed after school, and he wanted to find a way to occupy their time so that they weren't out there in a dangerous situation. Yeah, and you know those hours from three to seven are the most vulnerable hours of the week for, for kids. Kids that are not involved in after-school programming are 50% more likely to be involved in drugs and teenage pregnancy and, and those kinds of behaviors. So it is critical. And 
when they come into New City, they're instantly loved. They're they're in part of this, enveloped in this warm community. And um, what's really interesting is the teenagers, after they leave New City, they go on to college, and 99% of our teens actually matriculate to college, 89% complete college. But when you ask a teenager, what was the most impactful thing that happened for you while you were at New City? You're, you know, you're expecting them to say, well, that I got ready for college or that I learned an instrument. But you know what they say all the time is like, my kids, the kids that I was in charge of. And I just love those kids to death and, and I would do anything for them. And so the kids coming after school, instead of having nowhere to go or being vulnerable, they're in a place where they're not just loved by adults, but they're loved by these teenagers. And that, that makes a huge difference, I would say. Talk a little bit more about um, the specific kinds of poverty-related challenges that you see here in Grand Rapids. And, of course, feel free to uh, talk about any of the other cities as well. Like what What is it really like out there? What are the challenges that not only these kids are facing uh, but their families are facing um, that New City Kids is looking to be a part of addressing? There's a lot of single-parent families, and mom often is – working a lot, two, two jobs, maybe three to make ends meet. In many cases, the teenagers have to contribute the money they earn at New City to the family income just to make ends meet. And um, there's a lot of kids that are wrestling with what we call the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And so um, I'll just give you a list and you'll, you'll recognize them instantly. But uh, Verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, divorce, separation. You know, if you've witnessed domestic violence, if you've been exposed to uh, drugs and alcohol, or you've been exposed to mental illness or a suicide, uh, maybe a household member going to prison. These are all what we call adverse childhood experiences. And if you have four um, or more ACEs, you have a four to 12 times increase in your risk for alcoholism, drug abuse, depression, and suicide. So those are not unique to Grand Rapids. Those are, ACEs exist everywhere in every country and in in all of the big urban centers in, in the U.S. for sure. So those things we're, we see. Another thing that we see is parents being deported or a loved one being deported. And over the last five years, this has, there's been more pressure put on the family unit and COVID certainly contributed to that and deportations contributed to that. And so kids come into our program carrying a lot of this trauma with them. And my wife, who's an MSW, has launched a program called- Bi MSW? Uh, she's a master's in social work. Okay. Um, and she has launched a program called Brighter Day which is focused both on the younger kids and on the teenagers. And for the younger kids, they, they talk about their feelings, they talk about their body parts, they learn to name things, they learn to externalize things that have happened to them and find uh, what is safe touch, what is not safe touch, who's a safe person you can talk to if these things have happened to you. And by giving kids language and by giving kids an understanding of the thing that happened to them is not them. Incredible, tremendous healing can happen. And the, if you address trauma within 
you know, the first couple of weeks after it has happened, you're so much more likely to have that child be resilient and heal. With the teenagers, we have teen talk groups that she leads. And um, we have social workers in all of our four cities that are also launching these Brighter Day programs, running these Brighter Day programs. And the teenagers form a safe group where they can tell each other things that are going on in their lives and they can give each other strategies for how to to um, sort of triumph through the struggles they're facing. It's been, it's been amazing. What are, from an organizational perspective, uh, what are your biggest challenges that you face? We've talked a lot about like the challenges that these kids and these teenagers are facing. What is challenging to you? I think, um, you know, obviously funding is always a challenge. It's it's $6,500 per teen per year. And while that might sound like a lot, it's $230,000 to incarcerate a teen for a year. Not that, you know, if they don't come to the city, they're going to be incarcerated, but just kind of the proactive versus reactive dollars. It, it, it's a useful comparison, yeah. Yeah. And um, so funding is is always a big challenge. Finding staff who want to come in and get into the trenches and don't mind uh, kind of the messiness of, of urban ministry, urban youth ministry, who are dedicated and committed to the kids. Uh, that's a challenge. I think um, as we're growing as an organization, uh, figuring out the back office and the infrastructure and HR and finance and how that serves multiple cities, that's a challenge. So I think those are some of the the normal and, and main challenges. Let's talk about the spiritual growth component. Is is it true that for a lot of these kids, this is um, maybe not the first time, but the first serious time that they're encountering uh, any kind of a spiritual element in, uh, in in the way people are dealing with them and what they're being taught? Yeah, I, I I wouldn't say it's the first time. I think that a lot of kids grow up around some kind of a church connection. But what kids have told us is that this is the first time it felt real to them. And we have a very uh, interesting posture with respect to how we share faith. First of all, it's not required for any of the teenagers to be believers or religious in any way. The The job doesn't repent, depend on their uh, assent to any religion or denomination. And so, and people, people often from the church ask me, you mean you don't have to be Christians? And I said, uh, no, we're here to reach people who have not yet been reached with the gospel. That's our goal. And because it's not required and we offer Bible studies and we offer brighter day and we offer uh, spiritual retreats, it, it becomes more attractive, right? And so last weekend or two weekends ago, we had a, a retreat where the teenagers could come on a voluntary basis and we went away to a retreat center and spent the, the weekend talking about what it means that a God loves you, what it means that you're not alone in the world, that life isn't a crapshoot, it's not random, but there's a loving God who's surrounded you by this palpably visible and, and present community that you've seen here and who, who has invested in your life, a God who has taken such an interest in this world that he came down and suffered and taught and died on a cross and rose from the dead. And those things are not being shared just by adults. There's teenagers sharing with other teenagers that core message of the gospel. And so uh, the beauty of the upside down kingdom that Jesus talks about 
is being made real to the kids in ways that they feel are relevant because they're coming from people just like them. And how do they how do they react to that? I mean, is that like, you know, you, you mentioned in a story a, a little while ago that like, you know, somebody figures out they're like, you know, oh, this is about God, right? Like, you know, talk talk about that kind of revelation that, you know, as they begin to encounter this, you know, to, like I'm sure you've seen plenty of stories. Um, feel free to share anything that you've observed uh, over time. You know, when I'm a pastor, my wife and I are, are pastors. And when we thought about a life of evangelism and, and reaching people, we never imagined that it would be as natural as it is in the kinds of ways that we evangelize and disciple young people. Kids, um, I'll give you an example. We put on these productions every year and they often tell the story of a transformation of a life, dealing with the effects of poverty, dealing with the systems that kids are involved in and the neglect or, or just... Uh, racism or any of the systems that, that are a struggle, right? But then finding that a God loves them and hearing the message of the gospel and sensing the love of the community, they go through this process of telling their story dramatically through music, through raps, through dance, and they write these pieces. And sometimes the pieces are jarring, right? But the act of writing the piece, even if it's a complaint against God, the act of writing that piece and having the freedom to express their anger and their emotions and then being received and, and seeing the picture of who Jesus was and what he has done, that act is this beautifully cathartic and transformative uh, process for them. And they come out of the other side so often saying, I didn't know that this could be true for me, that I could be a loved person. And it's just incredible to watch. Over and over and over again, we've watched kids just discover the love of God. And I think a huge part of it is socially, they see people that look like them, that are not, you know, wacky or <laughs> off, off base, but are trustworthy, reliable people who show up when they say they're going to show up, who, you know, keep their promises, conveying this message to them. And then they're like, okay, I think this is something I want to try out. So as you get up close and personal with uh, the poverty-related challenges that these kids and, and these teenagers are facing, uh, so you created an organization to address some of those challenges. What else have you observed? What uh, What are the other um, What are things out there that you think are being underserved that would uh, also help these kids? Uh, what gaps exist? You know, we've, we've as, as I mentioned, we've done um, uh, a number of interviews with people who are social service providers here in Grand Rapids, uh, and many of which cover many different aspects of, you know, trying to help both young people and older people in different ways. Uh, so you get up close and personal with this. What, what have you observed and what do you think people are not paying close enough attention to that they should pay more attention to uh, in addressing these problems? I know housing is just such a critical need, affordable housing. And we're not talking about a free ride or people needing, you know, a handout, but affordable housing is so often not within reach for so many people. And, and in our New Jersey locations to buy a house is just virtually impossible. You know? I, I, the work I used to do in Chicago, uh, the organization I was with, we looked a lot at, uh, at housing issues mostly related to 
the cost of it, and in particular, the property tax cost of it. And the only state that would ever regularly challenge Illinois for the highest cost in property taxes was New Jersey. Yeah, um, and it is it is a challenge, and we would see these stories repeatedly of you know families that were underwater that were essentially paying the same amount in property taxes as they were paying in a mortgage. So it's effectively like a double mortgage uh, situation for them. Um, it, it is a very real problem, and as we watch, both of those states have. Uh, steady streams of out-migration. And we would always observe that in almost every case, those are the people who can afford to leave. There are so many people who we would express to us a desire to like go someplace that is more affordable. They can't afford to get out because they have to write a check to get out of the home that they own. I mean, these are really big challenges that are, I, I agree with you, I think are unaddressed. Yeah. I, I mean, so there's all of the housing issues and um, education systems are not able to keep up in a way to to meet the challenges, and you know so many of the discipline issues in so many of the schools um, create a cycle of despair. And teachers are discouraged, kids are discouraged, parents are discouraged. So I think, and I'm not claiming to know what the answer to the educational um, challenge is. I think that one element of it could be what we're trying to do by empowering the older kids to become the teachers of the younger kids. And not just to do that in an after-school way that we do it, but what if that was incorporated into the model of how schools ran and the teenagers would be forced to use the math concepts and the English concepts that they've learned as they teach it to the younger kids. So we've actually, in partnership with... Um, an organization in Honduras, we've launched a program like this. Uh, we came down to Honduras to La Entrada and worked with an organization called Hearts for Honduras to train them how to use the new city model because their kids, when they hit age 13, they would be recalled to the family to earn money for the family system so they weren't allowed to go to high school. So this ministry had the idea, what if we paid the teenagers in the morning to teach math and and Spanish and social studies and so on to the younger kids so that instead of one teacher having 40 kids to pay attention to, now the teacher could have a team of five teaching 40 kids. But in the afternoons, those same teenagers then would be able to go to high school. So I think that's a model that could be explored more even in the U.S. Uh, Trevor, final two questions for you. So we've talked about the kids that work and experience these programs, what they learn from it, the uh, teenagers that are helping to administer and teach in these programs, what they learn from it. Uh, you said you've been doing this for 30 some years now. What's the biggest thing that you've learned through doing this work? I would say the, the greatest lessons I've learned, I mean, I can give you the, the sort of tactical lessons about trusting teens with leadership and the value of teens. And I, I've tried to share that over the last half hour with you. But it's it's more of a, a spiritual lesson that, you know, you get, you receive by giving away. <laughs> and um, I've been given far more in doing this than I've um, given away. 
And that when you get to those really, really hard places where you don't know what to do, you don't know how to solve a problem, relying on God and, and recognizing your brokenness and your cracked potness, as, as Paul says in Second um, Corinthians, the glory of God and the power of God shine through those cracks and lift us up and force us to rely on him more. And I know that's sort of clicheic, but that is the truth. And relying on God, learning from him. I'll give you another example. When we were launching our program, we didn't have adults. We didn't, we didn't have money. <laughs> we didn't even have a building. We were using someone let us sort of squat in the basement of this old church. We, in order to staff the program, we relied on teenagers. That's how we discovered the teen component. And I came to a young man who was the troublemaker uh, of the local kind of gang, right? And I said, how'd you like to help us start a kid's church? And he said, I don't care. And I took that as a yes. And I <laughs> took a drum lesson. I taught him my drum lesson. I took a second drum lesson. He caught up. Pretty soon he learned to play drums way better than me. He became the drum instructor. He taught the next kid. He grew up. This happened seven times. And so this obstacle, this daunting obstacle that was preventing what we thought was the goal, which was a kid's church, the obstacle being no adult staff, turned into an opportunity to discover our true mission. So I think one of the deepest lessons I've learned is when you get to that hard place and you're stuck and you don't see a way around it, trusting in God revealed this thing in front of us that was actually way better than the resource we had hoped for. We had hoped for, you know, mature, well-adjusted adults to come and lead the organization. Instead, we got urban teenagers who were resilient, relevant, full of way more energy than adults and loved the kids in the neighborhood. So <laughs> I don't know, that, that's a pretty powerful lesson. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people go to learn more about New City Kids? Yeah, our website, newcitykids.org, and uh, you'll find ways to get involved there, donate, find out about our, our four cities and all the stuff that's going on, events that are happening. Uh, you can learn as much as you need to know there. Oh, also, we have a YouTube channel, so just the New City Kids YouTube channel where we have hundreds of tutorial videos on music and how to do New City. Trevor Rubing, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.